Welcome to the podcast of First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming and progressive Unitarian Universalist congregation deeply committed to love and justice. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. It is 1998. I am at a Young Life Christian summer camp watching a theatrical performance possibly titled Saved by Jesus. The actors use this analogy of an orange. Once an orange is peeled, there is no way to make the orange whole again. We, the orange, are permanently changed when we turn our backs on God, and the only way to right ourselves is to accept Jesus as our savior. The performance and story had brought me to tears, and I was sobbing. I overheard my youth leaders say, we need to work on him tomorrow. Only recently had I acknowledged that I might be gay, and clearly this entire story was directed at me and the need for me to fix myself. Last summer, my mom had gone so far as to sit me down and share some specific Bible verses that depict homosexuality as a sin against Jesus and God. The message was clear. My lifestyle choice was unacceptable. Before I could even comprehend my sexuality, it was whisked away to a place of deep shame. That shame eventually led me into the hands of alcohol and drugs. These substances allowed me to express myself in a manner that felt acceptable. Inside a gay bar, alcohol showed me what being queer was, drinking, drugs, blackouts. They were synonymous with being gay. I soon found myself in the throes of alcoholism. After a few run-ins with the law, I was ordered onto the road of recovery. 12-step meetings were definitely not part of my plan, much less was the desire to have a relationship with any higher power, especially not the shaming God that I knew growing up. But I trusted the people in recovery because when they shared how they felt on the inside, it was like they were taking the words right out of my own head. Acceptance of my alcoholism forced me to place my own views aside and take guidance from those in the rooms before me. I'm incredibly grateful for those folks. Recovery started the long road of rebuilding my identity and my self-worth. And today, I'm a person in long-term recovery, and that means not using drugs or alcohol for the last 10 years. And what a happy ending. Except that isn't the end. Life still happens. People still die, move away. Friends lose touch, relationships change, new jobs, cities, homes, politicians. Change transpires whether we're ready or not. Over the last few years, I have felt called to embrace those aspects of me that are different, that caused my shame. My queerness, my Latino ancestry, my self-identity, my identity within my marriage, my deep love of musical theater, my nerdy passion for podcasts, science, and learning. In recovery, I can still make mistakes. But today, I'm working on embracing those flaws as being critical to my being. Flaws don't make me less human. They make me more human. Today, I aim to be gentle with myself. 
My mantra comes from Brene Brown. I am worthy and I'm enough. Come, let us worship. I wanna, um, share that I brought some, some friends and family with me today. The last minute I took them with me, and you can get to know them later. But I want to dedicate this sermon to my great-great-great-grandmother, Clementine, who had no last name who last we knew lived in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, and who, by chance, the story we don't know the details of, was, was freed from slavery. And she made her way to Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, from Florida, and was able to live in a free section of town and start a business. And she was a seamstress, and she started this business um, looking for jobs and contracts, and um, she wanted to make money so she could buy her two children back. One was in South Carolina, the other one was back in Florida. And she worked and worked and worked, but she just wasn't making enough money. So finally, someone came along and says, I've got a gig for you. They probably did not say gig back then, but <laughs> I got a job for you, and the job was to sew flags. She said, okay, that sounds good. I can imagine her saying. And she sewed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Confederate flags and made enough money to buy my next generation grandmother back from slavery. So from slavery to freedom, making flags for the Confederate Army. This is America. <laughs> Thank you, Clementine, for being in my heart today as I speak about something very dear to me. And it starts off early on the playground. You divide into teams, you decide what game to play you voluntarily choose to join and take a role and participate, everyone. You create rules and you monitor them, you enforce them, you modify them. You resolve disputes, you investigate conflicts, you make decisions as a community. When the rules and norms of the play need to change because someone comes along who has one leg or can't hear so good, you make accommodations and change the rules to include them so that everyone can play, so no one is left out. This is what democracy looks like. It starts early in middle school, where the first opportunity to create and implement a self-governing body is presented to pimply, smelly 12-year-olds. <laughs> we rallied, I remember, at the chance and the opportunity with position papers on lunchroom menus, <laughs> campaign slogans about the Vietnam War, posters about instituting Earth Day in our school, 
speeches about recess and its importance that it be longer, <laughs> debates about homework. This is what democracy looks like. For my family, it started at birth. I was born three blocks from Independence Hall. My first onesie had a Liberty Bell on it. <laughs> and I caught the bus home from school in front of Constitution Hall. If you were born in Philadelphia, you are always reminded that something special happened here. Not just the invention of the most infamous sandwich in the world, the cheesesteak. <laughs> Not just that. But something happened here that was radical. If you were born in Philadelphia, the past is always present as you trip and fall down cobblestone streets and tie your shoes on horse posts in the middle of downtown. If you were born in Philadelphia, you are always juxtaposing words and events that are diametrically opposed to one another. Words like slavery and liberty, words like freedom and control, words like revolution and reform. But the singular word that knit the contradictions, the monuments, the tacky souvenirs in Betsy Ross's house all together was the word democracy. Now let's be real, words like freedom and justice and democracy are not common words. People are not born knowing what these words are. They are creations of societies. Now the basics are simple. We all know the term democracy first appeared in ancient Greek political and philosophical thought in the city of Athens during the classical antiquity. The word comes from demos, common people. Kratos, strength, strength of the common people. Several variants of de democracy exist, but there are two basic forms which concern us mostly, and those come from representative government democracy and direct democracy, in which citizens are eligible to vote and have active participation in the political decision making. Now, there are several types of democracies. There are representative democracies, there are direct democracies, there are parliamentary democracies, there are social democracies, participatory democracies, cosmopolitan democracies, supranatural democracies, sortium democracies, and liberal democracies. So many democracies, so little time. <laughs> These lofty, inspirational, and pungent words that go along with the descriptions of these democracies are just great. But we know, we know that something is desperately wrong today with our democracy and our political system. The list of noisy, messy, and complicated issues are long and lamentable. And you know, you know something is wrong. You know that you are worried you know that every generation that's in here from the greatest generation is worried because they've lived through McCarthyism. We know that the boomers are worried because we lived through Watergate and Vietnam. We know, we remember Chicago 1968 and saw the police beat young people protesting against the war. We know something is wrong. We know 
Millennials know something is wrong because of the 2008 crash that made their lives very, very difficult. I know we all try to keep our head up. I see us every day walking down the street trying to keep our head up. I know things are going to get better. We're going to get through this. In the back of your mind, though, in the back of your mind, though, you're thinking about 1984, the book. You're thinking about The Handmaid's Tale, the book and the show. <laughs> and some of you, like me, who are slightly more apocalyptic, are thinking about The Walking Dead. Yet why does this impulse toward democracy still beat in our hearts? Despite our current situation in Trumplandia, we have, we have a feeling in our hearts that we're worried, is democracy going to make it? Will it continue? Walt Whitman in 1871 said, we have frequently pointed printed the word democracy, yet I cannot too often repeat that it is a word, the real gist of which still sleeps, quite unawakened, notwithstanding the resonance and the many angry tempests out of which its syllables have come from pen or tongue. It is a great word whose history, I suppose, remains unwritten because history has yet to be enacted. Walt Whitman was laying it down. <laughs> so friends, if democracy is to continue to function in the 63% of the world that claims some form of direct or representative government, it must be built through open societies, open societies that share information. When there is information, honesty, information, facts, there is enlightenment. When there is debate, true debate, civil debate, there are solutions. When there is no sharing of power, no rule of law, no accountability, there is abuse, corruption, subjugation, and oppression, and democracy is, th is threatened. You see, democracy can be deceiving. Democracy is as porous as it is solid. Porous enough for the wind of possibility to lift us off our feet, but impenetrable at times to mimic the chill of authoritarianism. Democracy is as elastic as it is rigid. Elastic enough to believe that all people are created equal, but rigid enough to count human beings of a darker hue as three-fifths a person. Democracy is very fragile. You have to take care of democracy. You have to tend to it. You have to put effort into it. As soon as you stop being responsible to it and allow it to turn into scare tactics, it's no longer democracy. Remember, dictatorships naturally arise out of democracies. And the most egregious form of tyranny and slavery out of the most extreme liberty. Now, our constitutional democracy is just a piece of paper. 
I remember uh, when you go to the Liberty Bell, you can buy the Constitution. If you've been to Philadelphia, you know you can buy little parchments as a gift in the shop there. And they spray it with some kind of smell. I don't know what it is. Maybe some of you might remember this smell. To make it seem old, <laughs> it's like this really weird smell. I can smell it right now. And you know, it's the 70s, so of course I'm sniffing it. You know, trying to get high or something, you know. <laughs> but even when I was sniffing that parchment, which was really true, I was, it was delicious. I'm sniffing democracy. <laughs> but I would be transported, like, back into time while I'm sniffing that, and I realized I was daydreaming. I really was daydreaming and aspiring that my beloved country, my beloved Philadelphia, my beloved city of sisterly and brotherly love could live out its potential, make flesh those beautiful words that I love so much. I love those words. I've come to the conclusion, though, that democracy is both a system of governance, but it's also an aspiration. I like the idea of calling myself an aspirational Democrat. But as an aspirational member of a democracy, I have responsibilities. I have to start here, now. Start right here, right now, to give it flesh. And to give democracy flesh, it has to be in our hands. We have to touch it. And it has to be in our hearts. We have to feel it. It has to beat on our breast. Our aspirations for democracy must be apparent in our behavior when we go to the neighborhood meeting. It must be visible on our lawn signs. Our aspirations should be heard in the comments we make in the coffee shop when we hear something that challenges democracy. Our aspirations should be seen on our faces where we stand up for the rights we have all been endowed with, but see them threatened to someone else. So I ask you, my fellow citizens, can we embrace our questions and concerns about democracy? Can we be equitable? Can we be generous? Can we listen with our whole bodies and not just our minds, but with our whole beings and offer our attention sometimes rather than our opinions? And do we have enough bandwidth to resolve in our hearts to act courageously without giving up on our aspirations? Can we trust our fellow citizens? Will we trust our fellow citizens to join with us in our determined pursuit of living, living? But you say, and I know somebody here is thinking it, you're saying, what's my call? What am I to do as a singular person, as a Unitarian Universalist? One person functioning in a small universe from work to school to school to home to home to church. What can I do to end the dysfunctional nature of democracy? What can I do? You can do a lot. But first, we have to remember that we must participate. Democracy is hard. It demands teamwork compromise, respect for rules, and a willingness to engage the other opinionated, vociferous individuals. It also takes practice. 
So here are a few things you can do right now. First, you must put perfection aside. Like you do in your marriage. <laughs> Asking for perfection in government opens the door to totalitarianism and disappointment. The genius of a constitutional republic democracy is that it recognizes in its structure that we are mortal and flawed human beings. The Unitarians and Episcopalians who wrote these documents had high aspirations, but they knew how the world worked for that time. So that's step one. Put perfection aside. Number two. Take our principles seriously. There is some tension, I admit, between our first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of all persons, and the second principle, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. But we have to be serious about who and what we care about. What are your lines in the sand? I won't vote for someone who isn't serious about ethics and good government, period. There's no lesser of two evils. There are things you believe in and things you will not stand for. And taking your principles seriously isn't just about voting. It's about your whole civic life, where we donate, where we live, who we speak to, where we send our kids to school, how we eat, how we drive. It's all of our civic responsibility. The goal of Unitarian Universalism is to help us be more whole. Help us be more whole, more purposeful, more focused in our lives. And the way that we do that is by everyday voting for the right to dream of a world where the word politics doesn't stop us in our tracks, and where the word honor still has a few good meanings left. Number three, get local. So what much of what matters in our lives is decided at the local level. School board meetings, city council, little groups of part-time public servants meeting in small rooms, doing the business of democracy, places where small groups of committed citizens can really make a difference. Like when we have a forum and two people meet who go on to start another organization and all over this region, citizens need to step up. All over this country, citizens need to step up. Make their case. And if they fail, get up and try again. Keep at it. That's the way change happens. And that's what democracy looks like. And where it's dysfunctional, make it functional. Number four, stay in the spirit. Democracy is a spiritual task. This is not to say that we should promote just our religion or any particular religion as an entry point to civic life. But the aspirations to democracy requires a spiritual vision and spiritual discipline. Is it not, after all, a claim of faith that all people are created equal? 
Is it not, after all, a spiritual claim that justice is more important than profit? While we can try these four things that I recommended to re-engage ourselves with the concept of a working democracy in our lives, people, we got to remain vigilant about the real tension that exists with each of us and the system we live in. We have to remember that the tension to be a democratic democracy is a permanent feature of the American condition. This tension of having my relatives and friends and anonymous black people that are also in these pictures up here with me is part of that tension. I'm not talking about them, but you can see them. They're the tension, I'm the tension, you're the tension in this democratic democracy. And it's a permanent feature of our condition that we must accept, embrace, and engage. Thomas Jefferson understood that tension. And in preparation for this sermon, I've been reading the Federalist Papers and inaugurations and all the stuff my mother used to make me read because she was an insane history buff. <laughs> Thank you, Mom. But in his first inauguration speech, he said, and I'm going to give you this quote, listen. Equal and exact justice for all, or whatever state of persuasion, religious or political, peace, commerce and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. Freedom of religion, freedom of the press, and freedom of person, these principles form the bright constellation which has gone before us and guided our steps through an age of revolution and reformation. The wisdom of our sages and the blood of our heroes have been devoted to their attainment. They should be the creed of our political faith, the text of civil instruction, the touchstone by which to try the service of those by which to try the service of those, the services of those we trust. Now, now listen to this part. And should we wander from them in moments of error or alarm, let us hasten to retrace our steps and to regain the road which alone leads to peace, liberty, and safety. Thomas Jefferson is foretelling, I believe, the reality that there will never be a golden age in democracy. He's telling us it will never happen. There was never a time in our democracy if we all look back and think carefully in which there was a golden age. Can you think of a time that was? Never, because we're constantly innovating. Democracy is dynamic, it is organic, it is alive, and it requires each and every one of us to participate. Never have we had a golden age, because we're constantly moving. We have wandered from liberty, as he says, for in error or alarm, and we have hastened to retrace our steps and to regain the road which alone leads to peace, liberty, and safety. Retrace our steps, that's what got me. We can retrace our steps in a democracy. 
That's what every amendment is about, retracing our steps. Retracing our steps so we can amend the Constitution with freedom for black people, the right to vote for women, and for those who are on the margins. We can retrace our steps. We hasten to retrace our steps. But we religious liberals and progressives seem cursed sometimes, people. We're cursed sometimes to live with the tension between energizing hope. I know you're going to leave here fired up if I did my job right, but you got that energizing hope. But then by the time you get home and watch MSNBC, you're going to be tempted towards paralyzing cynicism. That's because your steps aren't retracing. You got to retrace your own steps in a democracy fast enough or in the manner that you deem correct for yourself. Friends, I'm telling you, academic cynicism is a luxury of privilege. Cynicism is negative spirituality that in the end only feeds the forces against democracy. We can maintain our hope and be true to our own religious ideals if we remember that this very dissonance, this very tension that so often frustrates us can be a creative vessel as well. It can be as creative as it is destructive. This tension has the power to change the direction of our country. This tension can fuel the passion to question, the courage to be prophetic, and the faith to hope. Yes, it is noisy, democracy. Yes, it is messy, democracy. Yes, it is complicated, democracy. But it is our American democracy. Take you to the New Yorker, my favorite magazine. In the New Yorker in July of 1943, E.B. White, working as an editor at the New Yorker, received a letter from the Writers' War Board. It was a domestic propaganda machine during World War II. And the board had written asking them to provide a statement on the meaning of democracy. Here's what E.B. White said in 1943. It is presumably our duty to comply with such a request, and it is certainly our pleasure. Surely the board knows what democracy is. It is the line that forms to the right. It is the don't and don't shove. It's the hole in the stuffed shirt through which the sawdust slows trickly. It is the dent in the hi-hat. Democracy is the recurrent suspicion that more than half of the people are right more than half of the time. <laughs> it is the feeling of privacy in the voting booth, the feeling of communion in the libraries, the feeling of vitality everywhere. Democracy is the letter to the editor. Democracy is the score at the beginning of the ninth it's an idea which hasn't been disproved yet, a song the words of which have not been gone bad. It's the mustard on the hot dog and the cream in the ration coffee. Democracy is a request 
from the war board in the middle of the morning, in the middle of the war, wanting to know what democracy is. <laughs> start here, friends. Start now. Start here. Start now. Because, remember this one? This is what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. This is what democracy looks like. Keep going. Dr. Christine Blasey Ford is what democracy looks like. Kamala Harris is what democracy looks like. Adam Schiff is what democracy looks like. The two women that held that elevator open and talked to him is what democracy looks like. And I'm going to add his name, Jeff Flake, is what democracy looks like. You are what democracy looks like. Keep up the good work. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text First Univ, that's F I R S T U N I V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.